Hello, welcome to episode number 117 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Oya Dursun Özkanca, Professor of Political Science at Elizabethtown College and author of Turkey-West Relations, The Politics of Intra-Alliance Opposition, published just a few months ago by Cambridge University Press. The book examines Turkey's increasingly frosty relations with its traditional Western allies, as well as its steps to assert itself in recent years through hard and soft power in its near abroad, particularly in the Balkans and the Middle East. We talk about all this, as well as Ankara's grand ambitions to boost its clout in the post-coronavirus world, in our conversation a bit later on. But before we get cracking with all that, first let me remind you once again that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I'm also now sending links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email we send out to members with every new episode. Perfect if the subject piques your interest and you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Oya Dursun Özkanja. COVID-19 has intensified the Turkish government's long-running ambitions to become a more influential geopolitical player. Since the start of the pandemic, President Erdogan has repeatedly talked about how he expects the global order to be shaken up and reshaped, with Turkey gaining a more privileged place at the table in a more multipolar world. It's kind of a follow-up to his The World is Bigger Than Five slogan, blasting the UN Security Council. Details of all this are rather thin on the ground, but there's plenty of excited talk among senior officials and the usual suspects in the pro-government media. So I started by asking Oya Dursun Özkanja what she makes of all this. To me, I think that the Turkish authorities are seeing uh, certain windows of opportunity for asserting the country's place in this uh, ever-changing global environment. And COVID-19 certainly presents certain opportunities for Turkish foreign policymakers uh, to assert Turkey as a rising power. So I would argue that already the international and regional distributions of power were motivating Turkey to 
to have a more visible role in international affairs. And the COVID-19 pandemic seems to kind of present a window of opportunity for the Turkish policymakers to go at it more ambitiously, I think. Uh, having said that, um, I'm basing this argument on the airplane diplomacy that Turkish authorities have been pursuing in sending equipment as well as PPE and um, other t- sorts of supplies to cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. According to latest uh, statistics, Turkey has sent um, uh, PPE and all sorts of uh, supplies to over 50 countries, including uh, many NATO allies and uh, through the NATO's rapid response capabilities as well. So you see this airplane diplomacy and it is to assert that Turkey is here. Turkey is not only taking care of its own problem with regards to coping with the pandemic, but also is here for the NATO allies as well as for the Middle Eastern and African countries as well as for China. So that was a very powerful symbolic diplomacy. So uh, you can see that, um, you know, these changes that we are observing globally may present an opportunity for Turkey to present itself as a more ambitious rising power. Having said that, however, uh, ever since summer 2018, we know that Turkish economy has been entering a recession. And as such, uh, we are seeing negative growth rates, uh, rising unemployment levels that are over 11% as of now, and Turkish currency losing its value. So we are seeing a lot of trouble signs for the Turkish economy. So once again, there can be a certain gap between aspirations and capabilities on the other hand. So we should always take into account that gap. Yeah, I mean, since this, since COVID nineteen broke out, really, since March, you know, there's been all kinds of um, quotes. You know, the first statements really from Erdogan, uh, he came out and he basically signaled this way of looking at it. You know, talking about how this will change everything. The world has changed, and now you know, global institutions need to change along with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've also been getting other officials talking in very grandiose terms, really, about changing global balances. And then you know, you get media pundits talking very bombastically about you know the new world order and Turkey is a rising power and you know Turkey carving out its own sphere of influence as a great power as the uh, as the old form of globalization collapses really it's mm-hmm. all pretty heady stuff um, but as you say there there are obvious limits and I mean it always strikes me you know that these things are very rhetorical but you know there's no detail about you know how they're actually going to go about doing that we're told that you know they're working on it and this is really occupying uh, the one day to day as he's you know as he as everybody's in lockdown but there are obvious limits that you that you mentioned there the economic ones obviously they existed before the the outbreak itself but i suppose you know there is this tension there these sort of revisionist ambitions and the drawbacks i suppose that reality demands Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, certainly. So I think that um, it is um, certainly important for the Turkish authorities to make sure that they are first and foremost addressing the domestic concerns. And uh, I would certainly list economy at the top, as well as the uh, refugee issue in Turkey. So as we all know, there are about 3.7 million Syrian refugees uh, and thousands of uh, 
of additional refugees in Turkey that are regarded as heavy burdens on Turkish economy and other systems such as healthcare and so on and so forth. And I would argue that the initiative that we have seen in Syria, for instance, just before the outbreak was declared, that cost uh, the lives of over 50 Turkish soldiers in Syria, I would say that uh, the predominant uh, motivating factor for that type of an ambitious foreign policy was to ensure that Turkey does not actually shoulder uh, even an additional number of uh, Syrian refugees uh, in Turkey to ensure that the last rebel stronghold in Syria is protected from being under the control of Assad government because if it falls under Assad again, Idlib, uh, it would ensure that the opposition would flee to Turkey, adding to the refugee burden. And that directly ties in with the public opinion because the Turkish public opinion is certainly very much anti-refugees right now. So there are such domestic considerations at stake as well. Uh, That is why, for instance, there was a bigger support for the Syrian intervention than the Libyan intervention that is also currently going on. So uh, I would say that uh, Turkish policymakers would have to thread a fine balance between their ambitions for uh, presenting Turkey as a rising state uh, and to take advantage of this global shift in balance of power, as well as uh, to address the main concerns of the Turkish constituents and uh, to make sure that the public opinion's demands are satisfied to a certain extent. I want to talk about the role of public opinion in all this, maybe some of the deeper currents at work a bit later on. But we're talking here about, you know, these ambitions for, you know, increasing Turkey's clout. And often it's presented within this framework of returning to a post-Ottoman lands, reconnecting with a historic hinterland, really, and that being a, an ideological driver of, uh, of foreign policy. And we see it in the Middle East, particularly in Libya these days, as you mentioned there, you know, the way that Turkish officials see it is that this is Turkey really returning to its historic place on the on the world stage, its rightful role in the region uh, in the East Mediterranean. And um, another key area that you spend a lot of time on in the book that has not got as much attention these days is uh, the Balkans, uh, the Western Balkans. And this is often seen really in Turkey as a kind of hinterland, really, the former Ottoman territories of the Balkans. And it's often presented that Turkey has an almost historic right to hold some kind of influence in the region. Just talk about that ideological background, that chapter of the book. How new is it with Erdogan and the AKP and what's behind it? So Turkey um, really wants to assert itself as a as a significant power block uh, in the Balkans, in the Western Balkans, and it certainly has the necessary ingredients for a relative success story in Turkish foreign policy making. As we all know, Ottoman Empire has ruled over uh, this area, this region, for over five hundred years. So uh, there are certainly important cultural linkages. 
historical linkages, uh, linguistic linkages, as well as kinship ties uh, between Turkey and the countries of the Western Balkans. So as a result of that, I argue that in the book, uh, Turkey is uh, trying to use its soft power, its rising soft power in the area in a way to add to its diplomatic and political one. Uh, However, I would like to also provide a caveat there. I say that even though many interpreters, many uh, pundits are uh, interpreting this as neo-Ottomanism, I would say that rather than an ideological foreign policy in the Western Balkans, what we are seeing right now is realpolitik and uh, a more pragmatic interest-based rather than ideological foreign policy in the region. So Turkey's uh, main goal there is to convert its rising economic clout to diplomatic and political one. So uh, certainly using these linkages that I have already mentioned, Turkey wants to convert it into a political and diplomatic power. However, we all know that these countries are either candidate countries or potentially candidate countries to the European Union, and um, they would rather uh, join the European Union rather than be completely satisfied with deepening their relations with Turkey at the expense of their EU membership. Here, it is important to mention that Turkish official foreign policy has always emphasized the need for further deepening of Euro-Atlantic ties of the countries in the region. So uh, officially Turkey supports the NATO membership of the countries as well as the EU membership of these countries. Uh, However, um, over time, we have seen more emphasis from Turkish authorities on regional ownership because Turkish authorities are actually observing a power gap, regional power gap in the Western Balkans because the European Union and the United States have been dealing with their own problems and um, Turkey sees an other opportunity here to assert itself uh, as an important power in the region. So that has created a number of concerns from the Western circles, actually. So, however, the Turkish authorities have uh, consistently emphasized that their vision for the region is very much in line with the Euro-Atlantic vision for the region. But I certainly think that it's a pragmatic neo-Ottomanist foreign policy rather than an ideologically based one. And if you look at it, the highest trade volume between Turkey and any Western Balkan countries is actually between Turkey and Serbia, where Turkey does not necessarily enjoy a very positive historical reputation in that country. So it has caused a number of grievances uh, in the region according to my interviews yeah it makes me think you know that the perception really of the balkans changes over time as well you know it's perhaps also worth noting that you know the balkans the western balkans have traditionally been seen as a rather almost secularist heritage in turkey you know many of the late ottoman young turk elites and the early republican elites uh, hailed from the balkans including ataturk of course and there's always been that general association of the balkans with you know, this rather more modernist let's say europe facing characteristic and um of course there's actually 
actually footage of Erdogan as a young Islamist firebrand uh, in the 1980s making disparaging comments about the hundreds of thousands of Muslim migrants from Bulgaria uh, back in the late 1980s. You know, he was saying in that video in a very fiery public speech that these migrants are bringing unwelcome, you know, immorality, prostitution, drinking and whatnot. Um, it's pretty remarkable to see. I'm sure listeners can find that on YouTube uh, if they really want. Interesting to see how things have changed 180 degrees, really. Now the same man is leading a government that is very much trying to assert itself in the Balkans and using that kind of historical narrative of Ottoman heritage to do so. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't quite the case. Yes, and that uh, certainly creates some sort of skepticism on the part of Western Balkan leaders because uh, they would rather be uh, more Western-facing and secularist in orientation than the recent trends and orientations that are shown in Turkish foreign policy. So they would like to distance themselves from that type of an image, actually, which they, they may think that may hurt their prospects for Euro-Atlantic integration. Now, the research in the book is based on really extensive interviews with various um, officials, and you conducted the research a few years ago, and it was actually during, it was over the course, or rather interrupted, let's say, by uh, the coup attempt in July 2016, and obviously that had a huge effect on all kinds of things. It was a real rupture in many senses. I just wonder, as you did the research, you know, and as you were in contact with various officials, you know, how did the experience of trying to conduct the research at this very turbulent time, how did it change things? I mean, what was the response of the people that you were talking to? Did, did they become more reluctant to speak? How did it change the whole research experience? Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, I conducted my fieldwork and semi-structured elite interviews with uh, with the people that you mentioned uh, from 2011 to 2017. So the coup did not necessarily influence uh, my relationship with the interviewees that much because in 2017, I had a relatively small number of interviews conducted and most of them were with US officials. So it did not necessarily influence the willingness uh, from the Turkish counterparts to talk to me about these issues with regards to Turkey's relations with the Western alliance. However, having said that, there was a state of emergency that was declared right after the failed coup attempt in 2016. And in order to ensure that uh, the privacy and the identities of the interviewees are actually protected, I decided to anonymize uh, all my sources, even though some of my interviewees have given me direct consent that I can cite them by name, uh, I decided to protect their identities in line with the traditions of uh, research uh, in the literature. I just didn't want to have the burden of the moral burden of uh, having to, you know, be responsible for anything that might damage their reputation or damage their uh, livelihood. And since the coup attempt, there's been this really rapid acceleration, really, of uh, anti-Western sentiment uh, from the government. And obviously, that was something that was already happening, really, in the years before. But it really accelerated uh, after 2016. And essentially, that was based really on a belief among many that, uh, you know, Western powers or their uh, subcontractors were behind the coup attempt. And obviously, uh, there are also many other factors to the sort of growing anti-Western sentiment in Turkey, 
developments in Syria are very important here. I think burgeoning relations with Russia as well. And also, you know, the government's own kind of self-interest really in becoming more nationalistic uh, in order to preserve itself in power, essentially. And often people, when they talk about this factor, you know, they sort of say, well, well, Erdogan, he's just manipulating public opinion. He's going down this nationalistic anti-Western route in order, you know, out of self-interest. But the fact is that that sentiment is already there, really. It's just they're ready to be manipulated in a way. It's almost, you know, dry tinder waiting for a spark, essentially. And I just wonder, it brings up this whole question that we mentioned a little bit earlier there, you know, public opinion, the importance of public opinion in driving official policy or vice versa. You know, what's the dynamic there? And and how do you relate that to this general rise in anti-Western policy and anti-Western sentiment? Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, as you mentioned, this is nothing new. Uh, however, after the failed coup, we have seen rising nationalism and rising anti-Western sentiments on the part of the Turkish public opinion. It was always there in the 60s, 70s, especially anti-Americanism, especially on the part of the Turkish left. However, the t- subsequent Turkish governments have conveniently tamed it and uh, also uh, ignored it conveniently to serve what they thought were best for the Turkish national interest. And after the failed coup attempt, uh, we have seen this being used in a very convenient way um, uh, by the Turkish government uh, to make a case that, look, uh, Gülen and uh, FETÖ has been behind this failed coup attempt and Gülen resides in uh, the United States. He has a green card and he has been directly behind the coup that was orchestrated with the help of CIA. So that type of conspiratorial thinking that CIA uh, was behind the coup attempt has taken really quite some prevalence among the Turkish public opinion. And to cite this, according to the latest public opinion poll conducted in December 2019 and published in January 2020, about 64.5% of the Turkish public opinion sees the United States as a security threat for Turkey. So this is something that is really major. And uh, considering the fact that uh, both countries are NATO allies, this is really something quite discomforting. But uh, that type of a thinking seems to have deep roots in the Turkish psyche. And the fact that the public opinion is also constantly uh, shaped and framed by the Turkish uh, media seems to have a significant influence in contributing to that outcome. However, having said that, uh, Turkish public opinion is predominantly pro-NATO membership. Uh, So Turkish public opinion seems to be making a difference between the United States and NATO. Uh, Over 50% of the Turkish public opinion is in favor of NATO membership. So that is also important because uh, Turkey certainly significantly benefits from NATO membership. It is one of the, as I argue in the book, it is one of the appealing factors for Turkish image, Turkey's reputation around the world uh, in the regions such as Central Asia, Balkans, you know, uh, Turkey seems to really benefit from being a member of NATO. So Turkish public opinion seems to make a distinction between NATO and the United States. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask about that distinction because, as you say there, NATO is does seem to be held somewhat distinctly from the US or the EU in Turkey. It's quite a noticeable difference there. And from the outside, it might not seem very logical, but it is definitely a tendency, as you say, that there are opinion polls which do show that support for NATO membership is much higher than approval of the US or of various Western European countries. What do you think is behind it? I mean, why does NATO have this slightly better reputation than than other traditional Western institutions? Well, I think that uh, there are some historical factors behind that. You know, Turkey has certainly benefited from uh, being a NATO member ever since 1952, uh, especially during the Cold War. It was a staunch ally that also benefited from its NATO membership against the aggression uh, from Soviet Union. So there are these uh, ingredients in the Turkish psyche, I would argue, that uh, leads to uh, overwhelming thought uh, by the majority of the public opinion to the belief that Turkey benefits from NATO membership. And NATO, let's not forget, is the world's most successful and longest lasting uh, collective security organization. So even after the end of the Cold War, it has continued to adapt to the changing global security context and has made itself relevant. So uh, Turkey has been certainly benefiting from its membership. And also, it is important uh, to understand that it presents uh, to Turkey a security umbrella even to this day. Let's remember what happened just before the COVID-19 pandemic. During the Operation Peace Spring in Syria, we have seen uh, Turkey directly consulting with the allies under the Article 4 mechanism, consultation mechanism of Washington Treaty, that the founding treaty of the NATO alliance. And uh, immediately the NATO allies and Secretary General of NATO has indicated that there is no room for Russian aggression, they said, uh, specifically, and Syrian aggression against our ally Turkey. And we need to uh, make it clear that uh, Turkey has our support. So that was an overwhelming declaration that came out as the initial Turkish troops have been killed by Syrian armed forces with the support, air support from uh, Russia. So even to this day, Turkey continues to benefit from the security mechanisms and the consultation mechanisms that are available to all NATO allies. Having said all this, at the moment, Donald Trump is US president and all these old calculations of the US leading NATO and, you know, the US Atlantic order shaping many global institutions has really just been upended. And what we're seeing in a a lot of the commentary around COVID-19 is talking about, you know, that process being accelerated and the globalization perhaps going into retreat and the rise of sort of regional powers and, you know, a much more multipolar world. And I would just wonder, you know, that, you know, when Donald Trump first came onto the scene, 
and Turkey almost saw him, the Turkish government saw him as an opportunity, really. And people were wondering why that was the case. He was this sort of making these Islamophobic comments and he was, people were saying, you know, why is Turkey suddenly, you know, trying to court this man? And it didn't seem to make much sense to a lot of people. But I think that sort of maybe misread perhaps where the Turkish government is coming from, really, because in many ways, Trump symbolizes a, a retreat of the US from global leadership, a retreat from the world. And Donald Trump is not going to be lecturing in places like Turkey on human rights, as is the traditional US-Turkey dynamic. So in that sense, he represents a real break. And there's a sense in the elites in Ankara that in Donald Trump's leadership, there is an opportunity there for Turkey to play a greater role in the region and elsewhere as the US retreats. I just wonder what you make of that, you know, this disruptive influence of of, uh, the Donald Trump presidency and what it means going forward. Mm-hmm. I think that the congenial uh, personal relationship between uh, Trump and Erdogan uh, seems to be working to the advantage of U.S.-Turkey relations to a certain extent. The reason why I say that is because Turkey was supposed to be facing and is still supposed to be facing cuts, uh, sanctions, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act that was signed uh, in 2017. Uh, However, since then, the United States has not implemented those sanctions to the dismay of U.S. Congress, by the way, because the Congress is overwhelmingly encouraging the White House to implement those sanctions because of the security linkages between ties between Turkey and Russia, especially the S-400 issues uh, come to mind. Uh, However, since then, we have seen the non-implementation of CATSA sanctions. Trump has indicated that they will be implemented, but there is no timeline for the implementation of these sanctions. And certainly, if implemented, it is going to cause significant disruption to Turkey's economy that is already under a recession. So it is in the interest of Turkey to pursue good relations with the Trump administration to ensure that these sanctions are postponed as much as they can be. And in that very instance, instance, COVID-19 pandemic comes into the scene and the Turkish authorities, even though they have, for instance, President Erdogan has indicated that this is a done deal with Russia, uh, we are going to operationalize the S-400 surface-to-air missile systems that we have purchased from Russia in April. April was the timeline for operationalization of these defense systems and uh, in April the Turkish government made the announcement that uh, the operationalization is going to be postponed until the end of this pandemic. So this certainly creates an opportunity for further negotiations uh, between Turkey and the United States in order to make sure that the deal would be perhaps put (laughs) off the table with Russia and the S-400s would not be operationalized because the NATO allies, especially the United States, is making the argument that if operationalized, it is going to significantly lead to Russian infiltration into NATO systems, even though the Turkish authorities have persistently made the point that they are going to be kept separate. And uh, NATO is saying that it is against interoperability principle of NATO that no NATO ally should purchase a Russian system. So we are going to see how 
how it all goes. Uh, but in the book, I make the argument that if it proceeds uh, with the operationalized S-400 missile defense systems, we are going to see it as a path-dependent type of a foreign policy, meaning that Turkey is clearly selecting a path for furthering its uh, integration with, with Russia and possibly China at the expense of its NATO allies. And as of now, another reason why NATO is really important for Turkey is that there is a deep integration between Turkish and NATO defense systems. There is collaboration, armament, collaboration in research, uh, all sorts of things that really benefit Turkish economy as well. To illustrate the significant real cost of Turkey's decision to purchase S-400, Turkey has been a partner of the Joint Strike Force F-35 uh, since 2002, which was a significant factor for uh, improving Turkish defense industry. In fact, already in Eskişehir, there was going to be a factory for producing the motors for F-35. So, however, as a result of S-400, we have seen that the anticipated purchase of about 100 F-35s from the United States has been cancelled and Turkey has been removed, first suspended from the program and then uh, removed from the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Program Consortium. So it really carries real costs for Turkish defense industry as well as Turkish foreign policy. But certainly having Donald Trump there is kind of providing a cushion for uh, Turkey-US relations to not to feel these seismic, um, you know, influence of all these, you know, groundbreaking developments in Turkey-US relations. We are kind of seeing it serve as a cushion role to soften the impact a little bit. But this is not forever. Sooner or later, we are going to feel the impact. Uh, of that, despite the friendly relations between Presidents Trump and Erdogan. I wonder as well, you know, we're talking here about perhaps the US retreating. I wonder if what you think about sort of new regional rivalries emerging that we're seeing, you know, rivalries not between Turkey and Western countries or Western traditional allies, but Turkey's relations with the UAE, for example, are very hostile and they've just bubbled up as, as this, you know, space opens up in the region. These two powers are sort of emerging in it and facing off Turkey and Saudi Arabia as well. There's a similar dynamic going on. We're talking about Russia there. Turkey-Russia relations are very complicated, the kind of frenemy-like relationship there. And of course, Turkey and uh, various Kurdish actors, it's a very complicated picture. I just wonder, you know, how you read those going forward as Turkey becomes much more assertive. It's obviously going to rub up against various forces in the region that are not going to be happy with that and they're going to push against it. I mean, do you see that as a big threat in the coming years? You know, a threat for um, perhaps a regional war of some kind or uh, some other deeper, perhaps less uh, hot, but more sort of a Cold War ideological clash between Turkey and other regional forces? 
Mm-hmm. I think the Turkish authorities very, are very cognizant of the fact that Turkey is being increasingly isolated in the region. Uh, you mentioned about UAE, you mentioned about the rivalry with Saudi Arabia, you mentioned about the lack of seeing eye to eye between uh, Turkey and Russia when it comes to certain issues on Syria, the most important being whether Assad should remain in power or not. Uh, so you can see that there are certain trends that are uh, disconcerting for Turkish foreign policy interests in the region. However, I will give you one example. Um, The developments in the Eastern Mediterranean, for instance. The developments in the Eastern Mediterranean are quite uh, disconcerting because Turkey was, up until uh, recently, seeing itself being cornered uh, in the sense that there is this emerging alliance, regional alliance, in the Eastern Mediterranean between Cyprus, Israel, Greece, and to a certain extent, Egypt. Uh, So all of these countries are perceiving Turkey as uh, more or less a threat in their own region. So that was perhaps the main impetus um, behind the signature of several agreements uh, between Turkey and the internationally recognized government in Libya for demarcation as well as for security and defense collaboration. So there are all sorts of regional power balances and global power balances uh, that are taken into consideration, I think, by the Turkish foreign policy makers. That was Oya Dursun Özkanca. Many thanks to her for joining for this episode number 117. Don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoç and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Find Turkey Recap by searching on Twitter or Google or whatever to subscribe. If you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can become a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening <laughs>